Tēnā koutou no mai, hi to mai, welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. This morning we've got an exclusive poll for the race to become Wellington's next mayor. Then, after two and a half years, the government has scrapped most of our COVID protections, but will it back a Royal Commission of Inquiry? What we do need to do is precisely, as you've said, identify where those lessons uh, learnt can be so that we can have more successful public health responses in the future. We'll have that story for you shortly, but we begin this morning with the event dominating global headlines. Approximately 500 heads of state and dignitaries will be attending the Queen's funeral as official invited guests, although geopolitical tensions mean there are some noticeable absences. One News Europe correspondent, May Heron, is with us live from London now. Kia ora, May. Who hasn't been invited? Good morning. Well, yes, the biggest name is obviously Russian President Vladimir Putin, but also the countries that are backing Russia, and that's obviously because of the Ukraine war, so countries like Belarus. But there's also countries that the UK isn't friends with because of what's happening in the home country, so Syria, Myanmar, those countries are also not invited. But like you say, geopolitical ge- geopolitics isn't that straightforward. So China is invited, despite the weird tension with the West, but their ambassadors have been banned from visiting Westminster Hall because of their, the country's treatment of Uyghur Muslims. Mm. Maya, I'm hoping you can talk to us about some of the dissent we've seen over the last few days. We'll have a look at these pictures. This shows uh, police on the right-hand side of your screen there cracking down on a protester in Scotland. How have protests surrounding the Queen's death been received? Yes, so that beginning when that event happened in Scotland, police had quite a heavy-handed approach, didn't they? They um, were really rough with the person who heckled uh, Prince Andrew. And over time, that seems to have waned a little bit. We uh, had um, a bit of uh, footage showing someone asking what would happen if they held up a sign saying, not my king. The officer said that he would be arrested. But then in Wales, it was a slightly different story. People got really up and personal with King Charles. Take a look at this. I don't believe that someone should be born into a position of power to rule over us. So there were hundreds of people outside Cardiff Castle protesting against the King and they were kind of allowed to co- coexist with the people who were there to support the King. So they seem to have found a slightly better balance as time goes on. All right. Thank you so much, May. That is One News Europe correspondent May Heron, live for us in London. While most of the monarch's 15 realms have publicly expressed their intention to retain Charles as the head of state, or at least hold off on conversations about their constitutional future, some are moving more assertively towards republicanism. One News US correspondent Anna Burns-Francis has just returned to the US, and Anna, there have been some interesting reactions this week from some Caribbean nations. There sure has been, Jack. Uh, Broadly speaking, in the Caribbean, you've got uh, countries that have managed to gain independence but still retain the monarch as their head of state, if you call it. And then you've got these things called British Overseas Territories, and that's just a nice name for what we used to call colonies. But for countries like Antigua and Barbuda that have managed to gain their independence, it seems like a change of sovereign has not dissuaded them at all from pursuing this line of becoming a republic as soon as possible. This is not an act of hostility or any difference between Antigua and Barbuda and the monarchy, but it is uh, the final step, as I said before, to complete um, that circle of independence. 
Now, we've seen uh, tours of royal duty, as you might like to call them, from the fresh face of the family. William and Kate going to places like Belize and Jamaica this year to try and shore up support, maybe try and punt off those decisions about gaining even more independence from the monarchy. But it doesn't look like it's going to work out for them. Even on that tour, there was the old shaking of Indigenous children's hands through wire fences. It just reeked of the colonialism that these countries are trying to get away from. Yeah, that was very interesting, just hearing there from Gaston Brown, the Prime Minister of Antigua and Barbuda. So clearly they're not too concerned about conversations around republicanism at this stage. But talk to us about the reaction to the Queen's death in Canada. Well, Justin Trudeau has been very effusive. I think he called the Queen his favourite person in the world uh, at the news of her death. But we haven't quite seen the same reaction from Quebec's leaders, the bloc leader there saying the monarchy's involvement in Canada has been cruel and thorny. So that must have been some uncomfortable conversations there. But when you look at polling, actually, it doesn't look like Canada's going to move either way anytime soon. The Constitution causes a few problems with how they would manage uh, stretching into any further independence or towards a republic anyway in the future. There was actually one really interesting discussion that came up this week, which was around their currency, the same debate we saw in New Zealand, as to whether they would change the monarch anytime soon. As someone pointed out, is now, in the time of discussions about equality, uh, the time to be putting a 70-year-old white man back on the banknote. All right, thanks very much for your time. That is Anna Burns-Francis, our One News US correspondent, live for us in New York. Australia's been more assertive than New Zealand in recent years in pushing the Republican debate. And One News Australia correspondent Andrew McFarlane joins us now. How has that debate played out this week? G'day, Jack. Well, the latest polling came out on Monday, so still pretty fresh, and it asked 1,000 Australians the question of whether they thought the monarchy was something they should be keeping here in Oz. And the numbers are in. It says 60% of all Australians thought the monarchy is the way to go, while 40% supported the idea of becoming a republic and electing a president. So really showing some pretty strong support there for the royal family still, although it does bear keeping in mind this is still really, really recent, and the polling in the past has jumped up and down. It's no secret, though, it's been discussed in Australia, a referendum. But Anthony Albanese's come out this week basically saying his main commitment is this upcoming referendum on the Indigenous voice to Parliament. He wants to get that ticked off before he even thinks about going down this route. Here's what he told the ABC earlier this week. Well, my views on that, of course, are, are well known and well documented. Uh, but now's not a time to talk about our system of government. Now is a time for us to pay tribute Yes, I suppose, Andrew, from a polling perspective, it'll be interesting to consider the numbers from this week with another poll in, say, six months or 12 months' time. How have Indigenous communities in Australia reacted to the Queen's death? Yeah, Queen Elizabeth's reign represents around a third of colonial history here in Australia. So we've seen a wide range of responses from Indigenous and First Nations people here in Oz. You can see uh, over my shoulder on the Harbour Bridge there, the uh, Aboriginal flag was lowered to half-mast, which even in itself was uh, somewhat controversial. So we've seen some people really rejecting this idea, saying really that the Crown and, yes, Queen Elizabeth's reign does represent some dehumanising of First Nations people here in Australia. But also we've seen a lot of commentary around people who have been able to separate uh, the system, the monarchy itself, from the person and her life of service too. So a real range here in Australia, but a tricky debate which is still ongoing. Andrew, you have also been looking at some of the reaction this week from South Asian countries. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, in particular, it would be India and Pakistan, which has been really, really interesting. Obviously, there was the partition there uh, in 1947, so a little bit before uh, Queen Elizabeth's reign started. But that is such a, uh, a piece of history over there, which is just so divisive and really, really uh, broke up a lot of families uh, and split up, split up a lot of people. So we've seen a lot of people uh, struggling too, I suppose, just like here in Australia, with that piece of history too. And when you compare, uh, say, more Western countries, which have had a pretty large and significant outpouring of love. It's all over the TVs and things over here. It's somewhat different uh, in both of those countries. I think the, the Guardian put it pretty well, saying it was a muted response at best. So I think, really, we've seen pretty broad range here in some countries really having to reckon with uh, someone who I think can be recognised for their life of service, right, but also a piece of history which, let's be honest, hasn't been great for First Nations and Indigenous people across the globe. All right. Thank you very much for your time, Andrew. That is One News Australia correspondent, Andrew McFarlane. After the break on Q&A, we will put the Wellington political set out of their collective misery with a scientific poll on the race to become the city's next mayor. And at the moment, it's all on. Kia ora. welcome back. Voting papers have been sent out and we're at the pointy end of the local body election campaign. This week on Q&A, we're focusing on the candidates for mayor in Pōniki, Wellington. Lonely Planet reckons Wellington may just be the coolest little capital in the world. But that was over a decade ago, and last month Wellington's Chamber of Commerce described the city as lacking direction, stale, stagnant and dull. And another critic recently declared that the most excitement to be had in Wellington these days is this. Ooh. But many of the city's problems have been out of its control. The lingering effects of the Kaikoura earthquake, businesses hit by COVID, and the slow return of workers back into the CBD. There was a disruption caused by the occupation around Parliament earlier in the year. It's been a tough council term, kicking off with the eruption of some of Wellington's ageing water and sewage pipes. The repairs are ongoing, with an eye-watering price tag and much of the essential work completed. For Wellington voters, top issues are water infrastructure and cycle lanes. I'm a regular cyclist. They can stop wasting money on cycle lanes that haven't really improved my safety and guarantee fresh drinking water and sewage. I see very few cyclists and it's caused a lot of confusion. I actually do cycle but I don't use the island-based cycleway. I think it's actually reasonably dangerous. This year the council signed off 166 kilometres of bike lanes at the cost of $226 million. Housing densification is the push. Now the city's district plan has been approved. A further 50 to 80,000 people are expected to move to Wellington by 2030. Apartment building will be encouraged in the city's northern suburbs and from the CBD out to the southern suburbs. Getting around the city on public transport is still a contention in the capital. There's a lot of bus cancellations while funding. <laughs> there are still bus cancellations? Yeah. Earlier in the year, Wellington got a battering, and the slips last month raised more questions about the council's climate change response and mitigation. 
But perhaps things are looking up for the city, with the new convention centre opening next year, streets getting a makeover and a new council term. Fiona Owen wrapping up things in the, in the capital for us. Now, we wanted to know what issues are most likely to decide this election in Wellington. And with Kantar Public, we polled 500 Wellington voters. 57% of Wellingtonians want the mayor to prioritise the pipes, which over the past few years have sent water spilling all over the capital. The next most important issues for voters are climate adaptation, road improvements and maintenance, reducing rates where possible and investing more in public transport. So, those are the issues that matter, but what about the candidates? First of all, it's really important to point out 47% of those we asked either didn't know who they'll vote for or wouldn't say. On its face, that's a huge figure, right? But then don't forget, voter turnout in local body elections is historically much lower than in national elections. Now, Wellington uses the single transferable vote system where voters are asked to rank their preferences in order. For our poll, Kantar Public did the same thing. And of those who did share their voting plans, here are the results. The first preferences show a close race unfolding. On first preferences, Paul Eagle is in first place with 28%. Tori Fano is in second place on 26%. Current Mayor Andy Foster is in third place on 20%. And Ray Chung has 13%. Single transferable vote works by eliminating candidates on preferences until just one is left standing. Kantar Public took our poll results and modelled them under the STV system. That result shows a virtual toss-up between two candidates. By Kantar Public's modelling, under STV, Paul Eagle is just ahead of Tori Farnow, but it is effectively too close to call between those two candidates. Kantar Public wanted to stress this is not necessarily a projection of a Paul Eagle victory. It is statistically too close to call, and there are many undecided voters. In the interest of transparency, though, we will make the full poll document available on our website. Meanwhile, I sat down in Wellington with Paul Eagle, Tori Fano, and Andy Foster. I'm going to start off with the poll. Paul, you are super well known to Wellington voters. You have the backing of the current government, so why aren't you further ahead? Look, Wellingtonians have got a great choice of candidates, and I want to congratulate Andy and Tori. Um, but you have to work for every vote. I'm not taking anything for granted. And Wellingtonians are intelligent people. They know politics well, and uh, they are looking closely. I think what's more interesting is how many people have said uh, they're unsure about who to vote so for. So if Wellington voters are intelligent voters, why aren't you further ahead? <laughs> I mean, they have, they have been clear around what they want. Uh, they want to get back to basics. They want to plan for the city and they want to restore Wellington as the arts, events and culinary capital. That's what they told me, that's what I'm offering back. But they want to look closely before voting, so there's a long way to go yet. Uh, and my job is to get every vote out that I can. Tory, why should a voter on the centre-left of the political spectrum back you, someone with no experience in office, as opposed to someone with experience in central government and local government? Uh, so I actually have a lot of experience in central government. My main role was to lead uh, a, a political party, and I'm also a coalition builder, and that's exactly the experience that I want to apply to council. It's, it's interchangeable. Uh, what I offer is new leadership. Um, you know, I, I've come to really respect uh, Andy and Paul, uh, but to be honest, they've had their chance. It is time for a new leader to take Wellington forward. What do you think of the poll result? Um, to be honest, 
I'm actually really excited. Given I was, I'm a newcomer, I didn't have a profile before I ran, I think the result is really exciting for me. Um, I think it's a really strong indication that people are ready for change, um, but I, I can't be complacent. Uh, so what I'm saying is, uh, if you're on the fence, come and meet me, come to my meet and greets, uh, and we just have to get as many people voting as possible. Andy, Wellingtonians have had three years to judge your performance as mayor. Why are you losing? Well, I think there's, there's not a lot between the three of us in terms of the poll, margins of error and that sort of thing. Um, obviously, the last, uh, the last week's been a really important week in the campaign, getting material out to, to the public. As the others have said, you know, it's about us trying to convince people that, um, uh, that they should vote for us. Look, it's been an incredibly tough time the last three years for everybody. We know that. Uh, and I've had to steer the, you know, the council and the city through that time. We've got an extraordinary amount done for the city. And, and you know, my, uh, my pitch really is to say I've got things done that many previous councils didn't get done. Uh, and that I need another three years to finish that job. If I cast my mind back to the last election, Peter Jackson was, of course, a very high-profile backer of your campaign. This time round, he's nowhere to be seen. Why no, is that? He's in LA at the moment, I think. Yeah, <laughs> but well, why no, is no, he back to you? The reason he backed me last time was because there was a particular issue at the time, which was we had a confluence of interest over um, the, what happened with Shelley Bay. Both of us felt that the council had let the community down, uh, fought that really, really hard, um, and uh, you know, and he came in and said, "Well, I'll support you because because I believe in the integrity of what you're doing." Has it hurt you not having Sir Peter Jackson's support this time round? Oh, it, it may have done. It may not. I don't know. Um, people what's, don't what's vote your, for Peter What's your judgment, though? Oh, look, I mean, any uh, financial support's always useful. Um, the, the mana of having um, Peter uh, involved in my campaign is undoubtedly uh, helpful. Uh, but, you know, I've got to stand on my own two feet as well, and that's what I'm doing. Paul, during the 2020 election campaign, the central government election campaign, you ruled out pursuing the Wellington mayoralty, and yet here we are. So why should voters trust you? They should trust me because uh, this is an election about leadership. Wellington wants a new leader, someone who can unify not only the council but Wellingtonians. And so when, that, when I said that, what it was very much about is um, a statement where Wellington kept going backwards and they wanted someone who could stop that. They looked at me and said, we have someone who's experienced in local and central government. And so Wellingtonians came to me, many of them, and said, we want you to stand from across the political spectrum. You said you wouldn't. Surely an important part of leadership is keeping your word. But this is about Wellingtonians saying that we need a leader. Please stand. And they wanted someone who could unify the council and the city to get going. And I've got a plan. I've got a vision. And that's what they wanted. Without those two ingredients, you can't lead. They want a mayor who can lead. Tori, you talked about your experience working for the Greens as Chief of Staff during the last coalition government. Now during that period New Zealand's carbon emissions increased, a capital gains tax was ruled out and while middle class property owners enjoyed massive increases in their asset values, the poorest New Zealanders were left further behind. So hardly a huge success in progressing a green agenda. So with no experience as an elected official, what makes you think you can actually progress your agenda this time if you're Mayor? I suppose I'd say to that, I, I do have direct experience uh, with uh, negotiating and liaising with politicians, uh, and that was a huge um, uh, part of my role as Chief of Staff. But I guess my point is just that you didn't necessarily 
progress your agenda that much. You might have been negotiating with politicians, but New Zealand First were the big winners. So we passed things like the Zero Carbon Act, the oil and gas ban, um, and we did a lot of work on the family and sexual violence uh, legislation as well. So uh, given we were only a confidence and supply partner up against New Zealand First, who were a coalition partner, I actually think given the limited power that we had, it was actually quite successful. We achieved, uh, I'd say, almost everything in our confidence and supply agreement. I want to talk about uh, some of the issues that are most important to Wellington voters. So according to our poll, water infrastructure is the single biggest concern. I'm sure that doesn't come as a major surprise to any of you. Paul, a question for you and Andy. As someone with experience on the Wellington Council, what responsibility do you take for the problems that Wellington's been experiencing with water infrastructure? Well, this is about responding to the current crisis with water. And Wellingtonians have said we need to get back to basics. That's what they want. They want a, a focus, a reprioritisation on that. Not only water infrastructure, but also potholes and other infrastructure. But that can come across as a little boring, but that's about restoring the mana of the capital city. We are the capital. Mm. It's unacceptable that we have uh, pipes leaking, sewage going into our harbour, um, and they want us to focus on that. So, so as someone who has been in council, what responsibility do you take for not investing enough in that infrastructure in the first place? We invested in that. Um, Clearly not enough. Look, this, I wasn't on the council for the last five years, and so that council has to take some responsibility. What I'm offering voters is a prioritisation of that. And that's what they want to see. You can add in the slips. We've had terrible weather here in Windy Wellington, but it's about prioritising that, having a plan and get going. Andy, what responsibility do you take? You've been council for 30 years. Yeah, well, look, I, I'd respond to what uh, Paul's just said, and that's to say, clearly, the pipes started failing. I got, got elected, and then the pipes started failing almost immediately. Um, and I responded really, really quickly, put together a mayoral task force, increased the budget, and, and we've actually really stepped up the game. So we've gone from $1.85 billion investment over 10 years to $2.7 billion over, over 10 years. And the, the things about fixing um, the pipes to make sure we never get wastewater into a uh, harbour again, we've built a big pipe up uh, Bowen and Whitmore Street, and just up the road there, Taranaki Street, we're putting 20 $24 million into a new pump station and, and, uh, and pipe. Those are the things, it's actually, it's not about talking about doing things, it's about doing them, and I am doing them. I guess my yeah. question though is, why wasn't it done earlier? You've been there, why did Wellington find yeah, itself look, we, in this we position? Always, every time we were ever asked for resources by a water company, or whether it's council or, or our water company, we always said yes. Uh, and I guess that the big investments that we made, when I, when I got onto council, we actually had sewage literally every day being pumped onto the beaches at Mower Point. Previous councils have failed to deal with that. We built two uh, wastewater treatment plants. We've also spent a lot of money on pollution elimination, which is improving pipes around the, um, the harbour, so we get reduced the amount of uh, sewage going into our, our streams and into our harbour, and also a lot, on, a lot on resilience. So we've, my council, and uh, we've built the biggest reservoir that our city has ever built. And that's about making sure that we have water supply in the event of an emergency. So it's not like we haven't been investing, uh, and we've always said yes to every, every request for uh, investment funding. Tori, you've heard the numbers there from Mandy. How much would you spend on improving Wellington's water infrastructure? Uh, well, this is why I'm supportive of initiatives like uh, Three Waters. I think the reality is it's such an expensive cost and there has been an underinvestment for so long that we do need to uh, rely on uh, resource from the government. So uh, that's something that I'd commit to, working with the government to streamline our plans to really prioritise water infrastructure first and foremost. What happens if Three Waters doesn't go through? Well then, the reality is that um, there's a hefty bill coming Council's way and, uh, and that's, that's exactly why, uh, cause, and that'll hit the ratepayers even more 
which is why I'm advocating for government support. Okay, but I mean, there's a reasonable chance. Anyway, there's a reasonable chance at this stage that the, the national win next year's election and and three waters will be scuppered just like that. So yep. I want to know what your plan is if three waters doesn't happen. I'm planning on three waters going through, and, and again, I've said um, that I can... It's a toss-up in the, in the polls at is. the moment. There's yeah, a really no, reasonable it chance yeah, of what it, it is. Well, um, well, then we, unfortunately, we'll, we will have to uh, find an alternative with the current council, and our ratepayers might be in for some, you know, a, a hefty increase, which is why we should support an initiative like Three Waters. Do you, do you know at this stage how much you would have to spend to make up that shortfall if Three Waters doesn't go ahead? No, I don't. Not, not, not as, as of today. Paul, you're backing Three Waters as well? I'm backing Three Waters. What happens if it doesn't, if it doesn't go ahead? <clears throat> well, to answer your first question, Jack, I mean, I, would uh, I want to review council spending, and I've said that publicly because I need to understand where some of those costs that we could reallocate. So you're saying if this government doesn't get back in, what's going to happen? I'm saying that I need to review the current expenditure, and Wellingtonians have said, remember, this is a priority. So that would be a priority under my mayoralty. Why haven't you done that yet? Why haven't you reviewed this meeting? Oh, I'm not on the council, I'm not the mayor, but as the next yeah, but you mayor... Can, you, can, you can access the, the council spending records. Why haven't you done it? You've been, all throughout the campaign, you've been doing the whole line by line, or go through it line by line. In central government, when the Nats do that argument, you guys all stand up and say it's ridiculous. So I've definitely never said line by line, but what I have said is let's commission a review, because I know, and there's an example there with the central library around some of those costs. There are other examples, Jack. What I want to do is find out where we could save money or do things to Differently. That's what's that's what's happening with the officer with the office of the auditor junior around the central library building. Could we rebuild that cheaper? And that's what Wellingtonians want. They want to see projects done differently so we can reprioritise money. Right, I just want to go back to water though. Sure. What happens if three waters doesn't go ahead? So part of my I mean that will come back to a cost for the city. And the city will have to address it. I'm saying to you that we will we will commission a review of the expenditure, and I'll look at it then. Okay, I want to talk more about your plans for spending, because whilst lamenting the time it takes for uh, consent applications to be processed, you're at the same time advocating for more bureaucracy for urban planning in Wellington in the form of a new city development authority. So give us the sell. Give us the Paul us Eagle the sell. sell on why the new authority that'll take time to set up and will no doubt be consulting at large will actually improve current planning tools. Well, one of the frustrations with Wellingtonians is we just haven't got enough homes. And the secondly, and your survey tells us this, is that they are frustrated with the focus being on, for example, just the transport solution. What I'm offering is a bigger solution, a master plan that looks at the housing, the community and civic assets as well. And so communities have confidence that we're not just going to divide communities around one transport option, be it cycleways. This is about looking at the whole picture for the neighbourhood. But I, I'm unsure about the council culture. I believe that we need a new entity that's got a bit of hustle, that can get things done. I'm a person that can get things done. I'd like to see an entity similar to Ekepanuku from Auckland Council. So this is not new, but it's, a, it's an absolute priority for Wellington to get going. We need to build those homes. We need to build plans for our cities. And there will be some priority areas for the city and the suburbs. What do you say to voters who, who are hearing your explanation and say, what we don't need right now is more bureaucracy? What Wellingtonians will say to me is that 
thank you, we'll have, a, we'll have an entity that has a culture of service and delivery where they can go and get a consent and they can get a home built knowing that it comes with um, their needs in mind. I don't believe that's there right now. We have a city council bureaucracy. This would be an arm's length entity with the private sector who services their needs to get things done and the government through kainga order, etc. But we need to get going. Tori, you want to introduce development bonuses so that environmentally friendly homes can be higher than their zoning would otherwise allow. So how much is that really going to increase housing supply? Uh, so I, I do really want to work closely with the developers to really encourage that sort of initiative. Um, what I've proposed is along uh, from the waterfront to the hospital, that's, that's just prime, uh, prime spot for high density housing, but we need density done well. We need community spaces, we need green spaces, we need a mixture of retail uh, and laneways so that people can really feel at home um, with these buildings going up. I think that will help with housing supply and by encouraging developers to take up those initiatives, including spaces for cycle racks, um, we can really start to build a, a huge number of homes that are resilient and can take our city forward. Um, so I think it comes down to really selling the benefits uh, of, of density done well with the developers directly. Okay, what about that zoning bonus that allows buildings to be higher if they meet a certain environmental standard? Is that going to increase supply much? I think so. How much? Oh, I mean, you'd have to ask a developer that, but uh, it's, it's something that we need to encourage. Right. Andy, your council estimates 75,000 more people will be living near the Johnsonville train line by 2050, but you changed the plans that would have allowed more dense housing. You changed the definition. <laughs> you changed the definition no, no, of the Johnsonville train line. You did. No, no, so that more dense housing cannot be built near yeah. that near that train line. Look, no, what we what our estimate was we need we need housing for about fifty to eighty thousand more people across the city, not on not on the Johnsonville train train lines. Right. It's across the whole city, and we, the areas that we're targeting specifically are Tawa because of the railway line, Johnsonville town centre because of all the services that are there and we're expecting redevelopment, working on uh, redevelopment with the, uh, uh, the Johnson Mall owners, uh, and then on the mass transit route between the central city and through Newtown to Island Bay. <coughs> so that's our specific target and we need that densification. I mean, what Paul and Tori are talking about is exactly what we're doing at the moment. So we have actually proposed, I, I specifically pitched to Ministers Wood and Woods that we needed an urban development agency to sit alongside the mass transit to make them both work. And they said, yeah, we agree with that. So we're actually actively working with Kang Aura to do that and to bring that uh, to fruition next year. And can I just also say that we had that idea back in 2015 and 2016. We, we were ready to go. And Justin and Paul uh, came in and said they didn't want to do that. So I'm puzzled by the change in, the change in tack there. What about the density in Johnsonville, though? On the, on the Johnsonville, in the, around the Johnsonville Town Centre, absolutely. Yeah, on the Johnsonville line, look, I don't think it stacks up. Why not? Well, it's just that, that A, the change in character, B, I don't think we need it there. We, we've change already, in character? We've already, Jack, we've already provided, in our district plan, so the first new district plan for 22 years, we've already provided more than twice the housing capacity that we need. And that's without doing the deliberate going and building more houses through an urban development agency. So we will be absolutely fine. We can have our cake and eat it too on this one. Andy, Paul and Tory both support Three Waters. You oppose Three Waters. Yep. Doesn't that mean Wellington ratepayers will pay more if they want to have better water infrastructure? Well, I, look, I think there's an illusion here that somehow the government's going to come steaming over the hill and fix all this. It's not. It's basically setting up a new water entities, and those water entities will then bill exactly the same people, i.e. water users. Now, we're all water users. 
as we're all ratepayers. So it's not going to make a lot of difference. It's just where the bill goes, and you'll get a separate bill for water. So I don't think that's the solution. We obviously need to invest more in our water infrastructure. We're doing that. We're stepping up. And I'm determined that we keep on doing that, regardless of the structure that we do. If, there is, if Three Waters goes ahead, we'll make sure that we provide all the asset management data that the new water entity needs. If it doesn't, we use that, that data to make sure we can do the job. Our Wellington mayoral debate continues in a moment. And then, masks are mostly gone, traffic lights are gone, vaccine mandates gone. But if the government is so confident in its COVID-19 response, will it support a royal commission? Hawke Mai, welcome back to Q&A. We'll take you back to our debate with Wellington's mayoral candidates. Let's talk about transport. Tory central government has chosen a preferred option for let's get Wellington moving. Should Wellington have another Mount Vic tunnel? Yes. <laughs> yeah, why are you pausing there? Because <laughs> I got asked this question a couple of days ago, and I, you know, got a, you know, a couple of tunnels. But what I what I support, um, I, I support the current let's get Willie moving option one. Um, I'm really excited about the possibility for light rail. I'm excited about uh, dedicated bus lanes and a full cycleway network. So that's actually what I support, um, including having a tunnel for safe walking and cycling is wonderful. Uh, what we're going to see here is um, people who have preferred. You know, everyone has a preferred way of uh, travelling across our city, and I think this really provides for that, including our drivers. There's a lot of emissions in a new tunnel. Oh, sorry, yeah, my apologies. So, um, I mean, I support the redevelopment of the tunnel to make it walkable and cycling. Ah, sorry, right. my bad. But not another tunnel. No, I separately. don't. Right, yep. okay. It's good to clear that That's up. That's part of Let's Get Willing to Move, yeah, yeah, but I don't yeah. support it. <laughs> right. Let's give it to us 100% clear. You do support Wellington. Let's yeah, get Wellington moving. Yeah, I'm le so this is why I, I actually um, had a preference for either option three and option four. Right. But, um, you know, the government has chosen option one, and that's fine. And there are so many great elements about that that will help lower our emissions. Um, the second tunnel, look, that's just, it's a shame, but um, it's something we'll have to proceed with. Okay. Um, Paul, would you support congestion charging to fund Let's Get Wellington moving? I support uh, congestion charging and um, I was privileged to be on the select committee to look at that for Auckland. If it's good for Wellington, um, I think we should take it up. Wellingtonians seem to be okay with the idea, um, so yeah, I'm keen. Andy, congestion charging. Yeah, well actually I advocated really strongly to government for that. Um, Phil Twyford, when he was Minister, was going, oh yeah, no, we're not ready for this. Uh, but maybe the next government, i.e. the government we've now got, and uh, we continued that advocacy, Michael Wood's taken that up, and I think we'll see some legislation sometime soon allowing uh, congestion pricing across, uh, across the big cities, and that is both a behaviour change um, thing, but also a funding tool that means that there's less goes on to rates. If you are Mayor for the next three years, what will it mean for Wellingtonians who want more cycling infrastructure? Well, it will carry on with our cycling um, rollout. I would probably do it a little slower than the current councils wanted to do that because we need to take people with us and that the bullet gate approach doesn't work. So just designing things with people so you make sure, for example, the businesses, the communities alongside them are comfortable with the design, that's a much better way than just going, going bullet gate with it. Tori, I think of the three candidates here, you are the keenest cycling advocate. What distinguishes your views on the role cycling should play in the city from the views of Paul and Andy? Um, I suppose from my view, I'm keen to accelerate it just because we're dealing with a bit of a climate crisis here. Not a bit of, we are dealing with a climate crisis and we know that there are some people um, who might be frustrated by the cycleway changes, uh, but 
as soon as possible, we need to, need to give people um, the freedom to be able to get across their city on a, on a cycle safely. Um, and and you know, sometimes transition is hard. Uh, and I think perhaps government and council haven't done the best job in recent years at bringing people on board, but we are running out of time. So um, that's why we really need a mayor to kind of take and navigate that difficulty, um, but because it's, it's, it is going to be disruptive, but it does need to happen because we are running out of time. Paul, what role should Zaka Waste play in Wellington? Well, this is a leadership issue. This is what defines the next mayor in terms of bringing unity. We cannot have cycleways being divisive issues in the capital city. I talked about restoring the mana of the capital. Um, this is, you know, we cannot go to court every time there's a cycleway put in front of Wellingtonians. That's unacceptable. What I'm saying, we need an integrated plan, but also we need to bring people with us. I mean, Wellingtonians have had it with saying that we don't want this done to us. We want to look at other modes, we know our bus network's a little unreliable, but if we are going to do a, a lot, <laughs> if we are going to look at cycleways, look, they must be part of, I talked about a master plan for Wellington, a neighbourhood plan. We've got to have the conversations with business, retail, but all of those other things that make up a decent plan and then I think you'd get approval from Wellingtonians. OK, we've only got a few minutes left. I know that rates increase is always top of mind for voters. Paul, you've talked about going through council spending and reviewing spending as it stands. How much should we expect rates to increase under a Paul Eagle mayoralty? I think it's around affordability, and I think we need to get that review done because then we can be clear around what priority. So Wellingtonians are saying these are the priorities, We'll do the review and do a match on that. If there are things that we need to stop doing, that process will define that. Can you think of anything? Um, you must be able to think of something. Wellingtonians have some ideas, but those priorities are clear with my plan. They have said we need to do the basics first, get a plan for our future, restore Wellington as so the arts. So what does that mean, cutting? I mean, you, you, this is your city. You, you love this place. You must, you must have some things I top of mind that capital. you think uh, for wasteful spending. Turn it around and say these are the priorities, those are what needs to be funded. And, but if you're prioritising something, that means you're not prioritising something else. So come not on, give me some examples. I want the process to happen, the review, because that's the fairest way possible. But give us a, give us a vision, come on. You, got, you can't tell me a single thing you'd cut. Well, the vision is around restoring the mana, so there will be a process based on that. And let that process happen. Paul, Jack. come on, it's about <laughs> leadership. You got you must think of something you would cut. A good no, a good leader brings people with them and gets unity around what a good they people, would do. A good leader gives people a vision as well and, and lets and lets people know where they stand. You can't think of anything you would cut. Let me reassure you that Wellingtons have been clear on their priorities. That's what's reflected in my vision and plan, and that review process will then bring out what should be cut. Right, Tori, you want, you want greater infrastructure funding, you want uh, climate change mitigation, uh, you want intensified housing, more money for the arts. So if you are mayor, how much will the rates increase on your watch? So I, uh, I'm, I'm committing to the uh, council increase that has already been announced. I don't intend on increasing those rates uh, during my first term as mayor, uh, which is why I want to utilise tools like uh, debt funding tools or... Um, and uh, again, advocating for government funding as well. But um, I, I completely feel, uh, you know, that with the cost of living crisis happening right now, people are feeling that back pocket uh, sort of struggle. So I certainly want to uh, remove that anxiety, commit to what the council has already planned, because people are becoming very aware of that, uh, and um, using other tools possible for the extra things that I might want to do. And I think rates went up eight. 
percent on average. Eight percent, seven point yeah. three percent inflation. So, so just well, above inflation. Uh, um, yeah. Yeah, how, how much are they going to continue to increase? Yeah, look, um, the, the big the big drivers for our um, our rates increases now are capital projects. So it's the things that are already sort of baked into you know whether it's uh, libraries and town halls and uh, takinas, whether it's the money we're spending on our infrastructure. I guess the issue is that if you're not prepared to name anything that you're going to cut and, and you're not going to do anything new to increase um, rates, you're effectively doing what council's doing already. So what's the difference between the three of us on, the, on that front? So I will tell you that there are some places I do think we can uh, be specific about. So we've got a $20 million fund which we've just put in place, I didn't agree with that, uh, to effectively incentivise accessible and green buildings, which I think both one is covered by building legislation and the other one uh, should be covered by market forces. That's an area which you could make a saving on. I think the rollout of our cycleways, if it was a bit slow, would take, uh, take some money out of the capital program. And I think there's some savings we can make out of the processes around let's get Wellington moving. And there's a whole lot of other rats and mice too. So I've, I've always tried to save money where I can, and I'll keep on trying to do that. But I need a council to back me on that. A three-year election cycle doesn't leave you a lot of time to affect the change you all aspire to affect. I'm going to give you each a chance to paint me a realistic picture of how Wellington will be different in three years' time if you are Mayor. And Andy, we can start with you. Look, in three years' time, we'll, be, we'll have fixed all the central city water pipes, I can guarantee that. We will have had the library will be almost open, the town hall will be open, Taikina will be open, which will be generating a lot more activity. I'll be backing the arts, culture sector, and we've had a lot of fantastic events in the city, and, and including the FIFA Women's World Cup. We will actually be just about starting some of the, the big Let's Get Willing to Moving projects. We will have done the Golden Mile. So there's a lot of things. To be, the, the city will be starting to transform. People will not uh, recognise that the transport system certainly will be starting to transform as well. And we'll have had a, a new um, housing agency to build more houses, and we'll have set up a new community housing provider again to build more social houses. So, those are the things which are in my plan at the moment, and that is what I will drive to deliver. Tori. So I actually do support a lot of um, uh, the council's current plan, and and I have huge respect uh, for Mayor Foster. I do, um, but what I can promise in three years' time is, under my leadership, we have a unified council where we can work to accelerate some of our key projects even more. Um, I will have the leadership to bring people, our city, on board to really trust and engage with our democratic system. Um, I am the 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 change, the the, uh, the communicator, the connector, the unifier that Wellington needs. So that is what I can offer. The the mayor needs to be a leader for our city, regardless of the policies that we're pushing for, um, and I'm the right person to do that. Paul, how will Wellington be different? Kia ora, Jack. I mean, I'm asking Wellingtonians to vote for me because I bring that strong and stable leadership, <clears throat> and they want a mayor who is a leader, someone who can unify not only the council but Wellingtonians and bring people with us and put them first. Listen to Wellingtonians, have a vision, have a plan that reflects their needs. And so that's about being bold, about having the experience to do that. But Wellingtonians have a, have a clear choice. They either vote for the status quo and get more of the same, or they vote for change and get me. And so that's what I'm wanting to do to deliver to them. I'm Hiki Akoto. Thank you. Good luck. Thank you. Thank you. Paul Eagle, Tori Fano, and Andy Foster. If you want to contact the Q&A team, please call my. These are our main platforms. You can email us if you like, or find us on Twitter or Facebook. After the break, only two cabinet ministers haven't yet tested positive for COVID-19, and one of them has just scrapped our COVID protection framework. So why is now the right time to lose masks and mandates? In the end, it was a bit anticlimactic.
For all the focus of the last few years on New Zealand's response to COVID-19, the debate over mask use, vaccine mandates in the traffic light system, the official end of the COVID protection framework was overshadowed this week by news of a long weekend. But COVID is still infecting and killing New Zealanders in numbers that once seemed totally unacceptable to many of us. I sat down with Minister Aisha Verrill. We're averaging about four deaths a day. Hundreds of New Zealanders are contracting COVID-19. Many of those will go on to suffer from long COVID. So why is now the right time to loosen our restrictions? Yeah, we're in a substantially better position than we, than we were. Uh, even when you look back earlier in the year, where we had at one point 20,000 cases a day. Uh, we know that since 2020, we've also made incredible progress. We're vaccinated, very high va rates of vaccination. We also have some protection from people having natural immunity. We have a system of care that's there to protect people should they get sick and to support them while they isolate as well. So we're in a position where we can make these changes safely. This is an historic moment, but I wondered, is there an internal tension for you between Minister Aisha Verrill and Dr Aisha Verrill? You know, I, people ask me that, and I think not as much as you might think, because Dr Aisha Verrill didn't live in an ivory tower. When I worked as a, hospi as a hospital doctor, I had to look after people uh, with all the ordinary pressures on them, uh, just, and it's kind of similar, actually, to being a minister. You don't keep your patients in isolation longer than you need to. You want to see them returning to work and all the things that they do to flourish. So in many ways, the sort of balance we have to strike as uh, ministers running the government response is similar to the well-being approach uh, that you want to take for your patients. For months now, the government response to the pandemic has diverged from the views of some of the public health experts whose opinions helped to shape much of the initial response to the pandemic. So doctors Michael Baker and Susie Wiles, for example, still want greater mask mandating on public transport, for example. They want high ventilation standards and perhaps even a new COVID framework. Why are we no longer following the science? Yeah, so let's, let's be clear. Uh, the science has never been one monolithic thing uh, throughout the pandemic and we've had uh, points in, in time where uh, some of those uh, suggestions from experts have been really prominent and picked up and uh, the elimination strategy would be one of them. But there's been numerous decisions all the way through where government has had to operationalise the science and so that's, uh, that's meant that we've had to make uh, pragmatic decisions. So I think overall public health advice uh, is still a cornerstone of the COVID-19 response. We have a new set of um, public health officials in our new health system who are really invigorating our work there. We have constant contact with uh, experts through our vaccine advisory group, through the public health mm. expert advisory group, and we continue to fund COVID-19 science here in New Zealand so that we can continue to be up to date with the latest. So what's your message to your former colleagues who feel the government has essentially given up? Well, I don't think uh, that that is the case at all. And um, I know that they see many of their uh, views reflected in the pandemic response. I think the, um, uh, there are specific points when we, where we diverge, but I'm sure they all look at the outcomes we've had in New Zealand and say, yes, Overall, this government has prioritised public health because we've had one of the lowest death rates in the, uh, in the world as a result of that. Did you personally advocate to maintain greater restrictions? 
unhappy with where we've landed as a package and it was really important to me to make sure that we retained that uh, isolation because that is really fundamental to making sure that we don't have wider transmission of, of COVID-19. And in addition, I've taken a lot of interest in making sure we have a system of care and support there to make sure that people can get continue access to vaccines, high level of access to antivirals, which you've seen we've um, advanced on substantially, and still having that integrated system of care for those people who have always struggled to access general practice, making sure we're helping them get services too. But did you personally advocate for greater restrictions? No, I'm happy with where we've landed. When it came to those conversations around the Cabinet table, you didn't want to see greater mask mandates, for example. Jack, it's my job to prepare the proposals that, are, that have come up, and I'm very happy with where we've landed. That still doesn't answer the question, though. Did, did you advocate for greater restrictions? No, I advocated for this package to be adopted. The Prime Minister said the purpose of scrapping the framework was to give the public certainty. I thought there was no certainty when it came to viral pandemics. There's a lot more certainty than there has been in the past. And I think we've <clears throat> seen that we've been able to get to a situation where we've managed COVID, including that last wave, without restrictions on, on movement, without cancelling events, without gathering limits, and that is what gives people that certainty back. From the information you have available at the moment and your own personal expertise, what's the worst case scenario for something that might happen in the coming months? Yeah, so several months ago we um, uh, did a piece on, on variants where we uh, tried to cast forward into what those scenarios might be. There is a rare scenario where we see a variant evolve that is highly transmissible and it can pose more of a health risk than Omicron uh, currently does. Uh, that's why we have, um, rather than dismantling the pandemic response, made sure that we've worked with the public service to be clear about what we need in case we need to um, stand up more protections again and how we would do that. It's not about having a perfect map of how everything would work out because the moment you're confronted with the real scenario, your plans are probably going to be out of date. But it is about maintaining capabilities. Let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, in order to stand up uh, contact tracing, um, again, we have to make sure that we maintain the IT systems that underpins it. We're doing that, in fact, we're doing that by building it out to include measles and um, other diseases and monkeypox in the digital contact tracing system. We need to make sure that laboratories, now that we're not doing large-scale PCR, still keep their equipment ready and we'll be contracting in a way that encourages them to do that. So that's what that preparedness approach is about. What is the likelihood that we would have to reintroduce some restrictions? I think no one can really be clear about about that but I think it's unlikely and what we're seeing play out is a more likely scenario of these Omicron subvariants come through which we can you know more than 50 percent uh, manage with the with the tools that we have. Do you feel confident you can put the genie back in the bottle that you can come back to the New Zealand public and say you know what we've had no restrictions for some time now effectively no restrictions for some time now but we want you to mask up once again? Look, I think that's one of the really difficult things, is knowing exactly how that balance of sort of um, public licence and uh, would play out in a particular situation. But let's go back to 2020. Mm. We were in a very different situation and the public licence was high because we were looking at terrible situations out of unfolding in New York, London, Italy, mm. uh, 
and it's in that sort of situation where I think, yeah, there, there would be a desire to see government do, do more. So I think um, people often talk about the public licence as if it's a uh, one-way thing here, whereas I think actually it responds quite sensitively to the changes the public perceive in the risk which is real. So if we are averaging roughly four deaths related to COVID-19 a day in New Zealand, what do you think the threshold would be for reintroducing some of those public health measures that have been scrapped? Yeah, as we've said all the way through, it's, it's never just case numbers that guide us on those decisions. It's other things as well. So it would depend on what we thought about population immunity at the at the time, uh, it would depend on the science of a of a new variant or subvariant if that was present, and also whenever we make decisions about COVID, we take into account the economic and social impacts as well. The United States has just received Omicron tailored booster shots. When will they be available in New Zealand? Yeah, so there is an application uh, from Pfizer underway with with MedSafe, uh, so that will go through its usual its usual process. But I think there's I think one of the things I'd say just the big picture with the future of our vaccination program is it isn't clear to me that the future is necessarily going to be about that population-wide vaccine rollout again. It does seem to be the case that the, um, the primary series and one booster has given long-lived protection against severe disease. So it may be in the future we're looking again at risk groups for, for who we're vaccinating. But that's, that's where the scientific debate is currently at. Do you support a Royal Commission of Inquiry into our pandemic response? Yeah, so you would have heard the Prime Minister say um, yesterday that she's uh, getting advice on what the form that in inquiry would take. But I'm really open to it and I think we should feel confident that with a, um, a response that's been uh, world leading in terms of the number of lives saved, that uh, overall the findings of the response will be favor of the inquiry will be favourable. What we do need to do is precisely as you've said, identify where those lessons uh, learnt can be so that we can have more successful public health responses in the future. You personally came into politics in the throes of the pandemic with yeah. a very specific purpose and field of expertise. Yeah. If this is the beginning of the end when it comes to the pandemic, and I know that's a big if, we're all crossing our fingers, what do you want to do? Well, I'm really motivated by what I'm doing in the associate health portfolio, including the um, law. We, it's currently at select committee to um, help us achieve our smoke-free goal by making sure we have a smoke-free generation and restricting tobacco in the, in the community. And uh, that's really important to me. It's another way in which we can really help the health of New Zealanders. And this research science and innovation portfolio will have a white paper out this year on the future of the science system, and I'm excited about that too. Are you committed to standing next year? Yeah. If Labour is in opposition, are you committed to remaining in Parliament for another term? I haven't that thought that far ahead and I'm going to fight really hard to make sure that Labour wins at the next election. That is COVID-19 Response Minister Aisha Viral. Stay with us, Q&A is back after the break. Kuromutu, that is Q&A for this week from the Q&A team. Thank you for watching and namahi kia koutou i ngā karere. Thanks for your feedback. Hey Tera Wiki, we'll see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.